Lucky Land Slots, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Mouth Off, a platform for marginalized groups to get their stories heard. I'm Clary Sadler. And today, I'm interviewing political activist Ginny Butcher. Ginny Butcher is a disability activist working with journalists, academics, schools, and other organizations. She's also a public speaker, speaks to young people and adults about areas such as what it means to be physically disabled and why disability matters. She's also written for many online publications and has appeared in the news talking about disability rights. So how are you? Have you had a good a good week so far? I have, thank you, yeah. Um, not been up to much. Uh, <laughs> bouncing around, lockdown's a bit weird, isn't it? So, um, yeah. It is. It's like we're all getting into, um, you know, this lockdown fatigue stage of just, yeah. you know, the first one, it was scary, but it was sunny and you could quite happily sit in your garden and yeah. tell yourself it's a summer holiday. Yeah. This time, it's a bit yeah. like, oh, it's cold. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. we can't do our sunbathe, can we? No. Oh. But hey-ho, needs must and all that. Hopefully yeah. there is a... An end in sight. Yeah. <laughs> so thanks for agreeing to come on the show, Ginny. It's lovely to meet you. And yeah, nice you to too. put a face to the uh, chit-chats we've been having back and forth on, on Twitter. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Uh, no, no problem. So I usually kick off the the interviews with the same question, just to get a feel for, you know, listeners to get a feel for who you are and what you're all about. So. Could you describe yourself in a nutshell? Yeah, yeah, I'll try. Um, so I'm Jimmy. Um, I live in Devon. I guess start off with the the boring disability stuff. So uh, I'm a wheelchair user. Um, but I also have a ventilated tracheostomy, which uh, I need all the time. So that keeps me breathing, and because of that, I have full time care. So that's like my disability in a nutshell. But uh, more about me, I guess. So I'm 22. Um, I live on my own. And I'm a law graduate. So I've done a master's in law. Just finished that last year. And now I'm sort of in between jobs. I'm hoping at some point in the future to become a solicitor, um, which is my goal and as well as that I like to do a bit of um, disability activism so I think I joined Twitter like a year ago now so quite new to the community and the scene but uh, I'm loving it um, trying to get involved as much as possible um I live with animals and uh, I like going out with my friends when we're not in an international pandemic um, <laughs> and uh, yeah cooking and stuff like that and like I said I live with um, my, well by myself but with 
two PAs. I call them PAs, personal assistants, um, at all times. So um, they live with me, even throughout the pandemic, obviously, or else I would not be able to live. And uh, that's my life. Yeah. Excellent. Very succinct answer there. <laughs> Some of our guests sort of get think, feel like they're being tripped up and then go on on a big tangent. But uh, <laughs> yeah, that is that is great in a nutshell. So as I explained a little bit when we chatted on Twitter, Mouth Off is a podcast made for marginalised groups. Well, really for or about. So I work a lot in the field of disability arts. My daughter is um, autistic and I've spent a lot of time within the field of the arts trying to make art forms that, you know, your average Joe might take for granted, like playing a musical instrument, you know, try to make those activities as accessible as possible, particularly for people with complex physical and or cognitive disabilities so that's basically where mouth off the podcast came from I just wanted to you know the amazing work that I was seeing in sessions I sort of wanted to speak about that and shout it from the rooftops it seems like everybody's starting a podcast nowadays so I thought well let's jump on the bandwagon so I use the the word marginalized sort of Broadly, we've had people on talking about mental health issues, dis- disabled representation in, in mainstream media, and other taboo subjects, if you want to call it that. Had um, a pastor on on episode two, Pastor oh, wow. Steve, talking oh. about religion, but also he's very sort of inclusive in his practice and considers himself a male feminist and we sort of discussed <laughs> is that okay oh, wow. for me to say as a man um, but he talked at length about it and it, it was great sort of hearing his view on things and how he feels the church has progressed so far and how far it needs to go um yeah. so yeah we don't shy away from controversial topics or you know discussions around issues affecting marginalized groups and I say that very aware that I am you know a middle class non-disabled white woman (laughs) coming from a very privileged place um you know I am a gay woman I'm a mum of an autistic child so I like to think I you know I'm certainly not the expert but I am very much open to hearing off all kinds of voices and putting out all all kinds of stories. So thank you very much for agreeing to talk about this. I suppose, you know, you mentioned the boring stuff at the start <laughs> the start of the interview. Um, I guess it's something you get asked about a lot, mm-hmm. your disability. What are the most common issues do you think you faced, you know, personally? Mm-hmm. And maybe through... You know, you've said you've just done your master's, maybe through, you know, becoming a professional, becoming qualified. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. well, like you said, um, I get asked about my disability a lot because uh, I have a visible disability. It's very obvious when you look at me. So non-disabled people feel like they have the right to ask you about it. 
Uh, there's a time and a place for that. I mean, it depends how I'm feeling, whether I want to answer those questions or not. Um, I mean, to be asked in a respectful and um, polite manner. And like I say, at the right time and the right place. Often that's not how it happens. They come at the wrong time, the wrong place, and uh, in the wrong tone and the wrong format. So, yeah, questions is definitely an issue um, that comes with having a really obvious disability that you can see from a mile off um so definitely that i'd say the classic ableism is something that i come up against a lot so basically discrimination against um people with disabilities um like myself um and just plain ignorance as well so other people are ignorant about disabled people um do not know how to interact with myself, how to speak to myself, how to behave around me, things like that. Um, and they find my disability quite intimidating, I think. Um, and that comes with ignorance because it's um, you don't know about my disability, so therefore you find it scary and intimidating, which can lead to non-disabled people either not talking to me at all you know, giving me a wide berth, um, or, like I said originally, asking inappropriate questions and um, and uh, being a bit too personal. So, yeah, definitely ignorance uh, and ableism. And then um, a classic has got to be access issues. So, for me, access issues are physical ones, so, like, literally... I cannot enter that building because of my wheelchair. I cannot go to that meeting because you haven't got a lift. Um, I cannot see my friends because they're hanging out at a bar that's not accessible. Um, and maybe I can't go to a concert because I can't get free tickets from my carer. So mm. these things are access issues relating to either myself or my carers sometimes, my PAs, as I call them. Um, so access always an issue in my private life and my sort of professional life, uh, if we can call it that. Um, so uh, at university, access you have to think about it constantly. Going from my undergraduate degree to my masters, same issues arise. Can I access lecture halls physically? Can I park my car when I get to university? Where will my PA sit when I'm in a lecture? Can they sit next to me or do they have to sit somewhere else? Things like that. Um, and law is a very networking type profession. So uh, um, there's a lot of networking going on. And that means a lot of uh, events, which is cool. But uh, <laughs> it throws up some access issues if they're held in places I can't get to, um, if they're held in a firm's offices that I can't get to, whatever, then um, yeah, we're stumped. So uh, access issues is definitely one of my top issues as well. Mm. <laughs> I did work at a special school, which is in South Wales, a few years ago. And I remember, you know, it was a fairly new school and they, you know, prided themselves on having all the latest assistive technology being, you know, very accessible, you know. And 
when they opened, they realized the corridors weren't big enough and a lot oh, of the doorways oh. weren't, you know, almost oh, like, man. you know, accessibility 101 for a special school that had a very high proportion of, of wheelchair drivers. And yeah, so even within a, a field that one would imagine <laughs> would be, um, you know, getting these things right, it was kind of like, you know, from the from the architects first um, blueprint something something was missed there yeah no one did a run through mm. wheelchair <laughs> i know so i mean you've probably covered some of that with your your last answer but what do you think is the most common misconception that, that people make about you when they first meet you uh definitely that I have a cognitive disability as well as a physical one. Um, I just happen to not have a cognitive disability. Uh, I could have, I suppose, but I don't. Uh, however, non-disabled people will, nine times out of ten, assume when they meet me that I do have some sort of cognitive disability or learning disability, and that means that I probably cannot talk or that I cannot compute what they're saying so mm. my understanding levels are um I'm inhibited and this is a challenge you know those assumptions are quite um hard to deal with uh I have to then sort of prove to that person that um that I am able to talk and I am able to uh compute what they're saying and I am able to uh have a conversation with them um but it's up to me to try and show those abilities mm. and prove it and the non-disabled person is often quite shocked by that yeah um, and i think a bit intimidated like i said before they're quite because of the shock they're looking at me thinking gosh this woman has a like a breathing tube in her neck of course she can't talk that would be ridiculous uh, and then I talk and then I think they oh, yeah, have a bit of a moment where they need to sort of <laughs> consider consider their life choices so um, <laughs> yeah. yeah it's uh, it's uh, a big challenge but that's definitely the biggest assumption people make yeah I mean I can't remember how I stumbled across you on Twitter you said you you joined what, about a year ago I think yeah. someone we must mutually follow had liked um, a post or maybe retweeted something. And I remember it was um, a post about, I think you were saying how much, you know, personal care, like you've said, you've got two PAs. And, you know, what a what a huge chunk of the day taken up by personal care. Yet yeah. in mainstream media, you know, this is not depicted at all. And if they have a tokenistic um, disabled character in, say, Coronation Street, you know, you just see her swanning in the pub and having a drink and, you know, yeah. that's great. And then off she, mm -hmm. off she goes home. And, you know, it's not really ever the focal point of any depictions in the, in the media, really. How important do you think it is that disabled people get more representation in, in mainstream media and the realities are, you know, better reflected and depicted? Oh, gosh. How do I answer that one? So important, I think, is uh, the basic answer. Like you say, we do have some media representation of disabled people, 
that's great and we can be thankful for that but it's not enough first of all there's hardly any of it you have to search for it and you can tell there's hardly i mean because when it does happen everyone who's disabled gets really excited we all uh we all you know scream and shout because oh look there's a disabled person on the mainstream tv program so yeah it's not frankly enough and, like you say, the depictions of disabled people are not very accurate most of the time. I think some portrayals are great, but they leave out the, you know, blood, sweat and tears of a disabled life. And um, they leave out, you know, the difficulties we face, the access issues we face, the care women to go through daily, perhaps the chronic pain, perhaps um, the illnesses that come with uh, being disabled, the hospitalizations, and the daily chores that come with being disabled. So mm, depictions are, you know, there's a lot of room for improvement. Um, and one thing that you've said, about sort of the care side of things. I think I tweeted about this just recently, actually, but I would just love to see a film or a program where there's a disabled woman, hopefully a woman would be nice, a um, disabled woman, and she lives her life, she's great, and she has a job, and perhaps she goes on dates, but you also see the fact that she requires care, and that's nothing to be ashamed of. Um... It's not a dirty thing or, or um, a scary thing. It's just part of her life. And she has to take those carers with her on her dates, take them with her to her workplace to do her job, um, take them with her to the pub to see her friends. Those carers are always by her side, and I think that's how I feel in my life, is that I can live uh, my life and my professional life, but I have always got carers and I've never seen that on a film or a TV program ever. Mm-hmm. Even good portrayals uh, in general, so I don't know if you've watched Sex Education on Netflix. Yeah. Um, but there's a good disabled character in that TV series, and he's cool, and he lives with his brother, I think it mm-hmm. is. Um, and uh, there's some great things about that depiction of the same person but you never actually see the care dynamic between him and his brother yeah what does his brother put into bed shower him help him go to the loo like Mm. what's going on there why don't we get to see that so um yeah it'd be great if uh we could actually delve into the nitty-gritty of uh disabled life just to highlight that it's not all smiles and rainbows and uh fun and games relaxation is actually quite tricky mm. most of the time and a lot of that obviously not just because you're a disabled person but because of the barriers that society throws at you yeah. so like access challenges that's not really because I'm disabled that's because the world around me isn't accessible yeah so, um, exactly if we could see that on the telly that'd be fab <laughs> does it annoy you when you see non-disabled actors getting cast in disabled roles. I'm thinking um, My Left Foot with Daniel Day-Lewis, which is a really good film, don't get me wrong. I, I It's a great performance, but <laughs> there's that elephant yeah. in the room. There are so many disabled actors, talented disabled actors that have gone into the profession that are 
massively underrepresented in the media, losing out to non-disabled actors. Um, I had a disabled playwright on episode one of the podcast called Kieran, Kieran Fitzgerald, and he, yeah, he talked at length about this, you know, just, yeah, (laughs) just being appalling. I, I just wondered how, how do you feel about that? Is it important to you that the representation is there, you know, in some guise, or, you know, should it be disabled actors playing these roles? I think it should be disabled actors playing the roles myself. I think if you can't get a disabled actor, it's likely you shouldn't be making mm. the thing that you're making. You should probably stop making it. Um, there are perhaps like one or two examples of where... Um, I can't remember what it's called, but there's that series, and I'm not saying I like the series, but there's a series on BBC about, um, like, we got David Tennant and another woman in it. Oh, yes. Um, there her. she goes. There she goes. So um, one of my queries on Twitter to the community was, okay, so here's a child playing a disabled child, and the actor isn't disabled. Mm. Um, so would is it, like, possible to get a child with um, that sort of learning disability or cognitive disability and uh, have them play as well. And uh, people weren't sure. Mm. So um, in situations like that, you should probably just not make the programme. Yeah. Well, I suppose there's a bit of debate about whether like there are certain roles that you can't get anyone to play. But then again, I just think that you should cancel the whole thing. Mm. Um but uh, in a general sense, I want to see disabled people playing disabled roles. Um, and when non-disabled people play them, it's just false. You know, it's just false information. And it's normally a bad depiction of uh, a disabled life. And uh, it just makes the disabled community feel shut out and angry. So, um no, I think pretty much mm. get a disabled actor. Yes, definitely. Um, if you think there's some reason you can't or it's impossible, then probably change something or cancel the show. <laughs> I just checked out your your website. Uh, do you want to say the website for anyone listening that wants yeah, to check it out? Yeah, yeah <laughs> Um, so you're an, an activist for disability rights and written a lot about this uh, you know, and had a lot of exposure in the media as well as reading and, and watching some of your interviews. Um, what barriers have you found that there are, I guess, for a disabled person living in Britain during the pandemic? So that was one of the most recent interviews I think I read. Would you like to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, as you know, the pandemic has hit disabled people or impacted disabled people disproportionately compared to non-disabled people. And the stats show that, so it's undeniable. And it's just, um, it's really shocking. I think what are the biggest challenges during the pandemic for disabled people? Well, I'd say a big one was, uh, and still is for a lot of people, in fact, getting the right PPE for 
yourselves, your carers, slash PAs, and whether you're living independently uh, in your own house or you're living in the care home situation. Uh, getting that PP at the start of the pandemic, so like the first lockdown, was an absolute nightmare. And I know that some disabled people didn't, didn't get the PP until after that lockdown, or even until the second lockdown. Maybe some people haven't got what they mean now. It's mm-hmm. just been an absolute disgrace with PP. Um, and then there was the whole coronavirus act coming into legislation and uh, it removed uh, council's duties to care for people in the community and they were allowed to reduce people's care funding if it was deemed necessary and this was just a shock to a lot of disabled people. Uh, Some people did have reduced care and they were stuck with it. Um, Council said, sorry, tough luck. Uh, This is the situation like an Olympic and they were stuck. Uh, Sometimes people were stuck in bed, stuck without being able to take their medication. It was a pretty big disaster. Um, I'm very lucky in that sense because I didn't face a care problem. I had my PAs throughout the pandemic. But I just wanted to highlight that because it was such a big thing to happen for a lot of disabled people. And for that to come into the Coronavirus Act in black and white was Mm. quite shocking. So um, definitely care. And then an absolute travesty was, uh, and still is, I mean, there's a disability news service just put out an article about a woman who's taking a case to the High Court about lack of accessible information throughout the pandemic. Um, Because a lot of uh, blind people and visually impaired people cannot read the information that they're being sent, it's not being sent to them in an accessible form, about shielding and about uh, other things, and they weren't able to access it. And when they have briefings, government briefings on the telly, it's not got a British Sign Language interpreter on it. Um, the Prime Minister doesn't have one in his in his uh, room with him. Unlike a lot of other world leaders, um, he's chosen not to. And they give excuse after excuse about why they can't have a BSL interpreter. And it's just, uh, it's disgusting really so accessible information throughout this pandemic has been very hard to come by and still is very hard to come by for a lot of blind people and a lot of deaf people or hard of hearing people and uh it's just um it's really bad so i think those things have been what like the disability community i've seen we've been discussing the most and been most upset by and then, uh, as you probably know, with the whole vaccine rollout happening now, a lot of disabled people just feel, once again, left behind, forgotten in this vaccine rollout. A lot of people who are clinically extremely vulnerable, as the government put it. Not a nice phrase, but there you go, mm-hmm. that's my phraseology. A lot of people who are vulnerable um, have not had the vaccine yet, have not been contacted, um, and other people who are not vulnerable have. And uh, some people feel there's been some queue jumping and some lack of information about this vaccine rollout. So once again, disabled people just feel 
you know, cut out of the loop and forgotten. So I think those have been the worst things. Yeah. yeah, I was very shocked to find out that a client of mine that I work with, um, he's nonverbal, cerebral palsy, and his mum is one of his carers, and yet his other care team were vaccinated and him and his mother are, are still waiting we've been told you know not yet not yet not yet and uh yeah she was sort of querying well i am a carer though you know full-time carer for my son but as you say yes on balance you would think after everything they they have put in the media as you said about the vulnerable <laughs> being the most vulnerable to then yeah. not be you know, it surely, yeah, should be vaccinated a priority as nursing homes, um, you know, are, are now being uh, what you said about the Prime Minister's briefings. Mm. Uh, so I'm in Wales, so we get uh, Mark Drake Drakeford's briefings. And of course, I'm not a Welsh speaker. This may sound uh, terrible, <laughs> but... It seems to be, it takes so, you know, twice as long to, to listen to the briefing because they interpret everything in Welsh. And yet, to my knowledge, and I do apologise if I'm mistaken, I don't recall seeing BSL interpreter as well. I suppose I understand in Wales that the Welsh language is a you know priority of the Welsh government to promote it and keep it alive and vibrant. But... Most Welsh speakers understand English as well. <laughs> you would think, yeah. yes, as I say, as you said, the BSL interpretation would be a priority. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Shocking, isn't it? So, okay, I know Christmas has been and gone now. You did something called Accessible Advent Campaign at Christmas. Do you want to tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, um, yeah, that was fun. Um, so for the whole of December, I just started this hashtag, Accessible Advent, whereby anyone who was disabled could use it and just sort of tweet or, or put it on other social media sites if, if they wanted um, about how their life could be made more accessible um, in any way, shape or form. You know, depending on what their disability was, depending on what their lifestyle was, whatever. Um, but I just wanted to do something for Advent and I wanted to make it community based so that everyone could join in. And I thought that'd be fun. I thought it'd be quite positive because we could all share positive things that could happen, which would greatly or, or sometimes they were small things actually, it should slightly improve our lives and you know make things easier make things happier and it was actually great fun a lot of people got involved and uh, it went really well and i tweeted a lot of stuff oh gosh can i remember what i tweeted probably not but um <laughs> tried to do one a day of uh things that could just make my life more accessible literally so for me that would be mostly uh physical things so, um, for example, one big one I remember thinking about is I'd like to, in the future, be able to fly on a plane in my wheelchair. So if someone could please hurry up and design uh, an accessible commercial flight, that would be fantastic. Uh, and then small things such as 
like when I go out to eat, um, I really find it a lot easier to have plastic cups. So it would just be fantastic if in the restaurant you were able to ask for a plastic cup. Mm. Yeah, small things um, and then I'll be able to drink by myself rather than have someone hold the cup for me so it'd be fantastic so those are my sorts of things and then other people do loads of other things from like scent based things like perfumes like you know how inaccessible scents are mm. how they make people's lives difficult all the way through to like captions um, things like that so it was fantastic yeah so Accessibility, you know, it seems to be a common a common theme running through your your website and and what we talked about today. Um, to a degree, what changes or developments have you noticed in the UK? Say, I don't know, over the last ten years, and how do you think the UK compares to maybe other countries you've visited? I don't know if you've done much yeah. travelling at all. Yeah, well, I've done a bit. Like I said, I can't fly. So, um, Europe's my, <laughs> my wildest career, mm. I'm afraid. But, um, yeah, so what changes have I seen? So, like I say, I'm 22, so I'll be looking back at sort of my time growing up, really. So, 10 years ago, where was I 10 years ago? Going into secondary school, 10 years ago. So, um, yeah, what changes do I see? For me, again, this is going to be access-based. So I think that um, physical wheelchair access to places has improved. I do see improvements in the UK. I think that when I was younger, more attractions, places... And, you know, social areas were inaccessible to me because of my wheelchair. I think now I've still come up against a heck of a lot of wheelchair access problems. But I think it's better. And I think there's more of an expectation of when you build a new place, you've got to put in the the lift, the ramps, and the wheelchair accessible toilet, uh, things like that. Perhaps a change in places, if we're lucky. Um, So, yeah, I think... But I think wheelchair access and things like that has got better. I also think just sort of less of a physical thing or rather an infrastructure thing, more of um, hearts and minds type thing. I think that education around disability and disabled people and what it means to be disabled has improved since I was... Yeah. Um, I still come up against a lot of ignorance, like I mentioned already, but I do think people have a more open-minded approach to disability, um, and perhaps they think, they know a bit more about it from watching, like, you know, the 2012 Olympics, etc. Yeah. Or Olympics, if you want to call it that, so... They think they know a bit more about it, which is cool. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a bit more of a, of a sense of, like, acceptance in society, for myself, anyway. I think compared to other countries I've been so weirdly, I saw a massive difference when I went to Denmark. I don't know if you've ever been. Have you ever no, been? no, never. I don't know. It's, um, so I went to Copenhagen, and... 
it was great in terms of accessibility. For example, on the streets, it might be cobbled or paved or whatever. And then in the middle of the cobbles, they have, like, tracks. And I guess the tracks are not technically built for wheelchairs. I guess they're for, like, bikes or buggies. Mm-hmm. But it benefits wheelchair users too, so I was loving life. I was rolling around, <laughs> you know. Going extremely fast, <laughs> and um, yeah, it was great. So accessibility in Denmark was actually really good, and um, I was able to get everywhere. So just street, in terms of street accessibility, you know, the world around me, um, I saw a big difference when I went to Scandinavia in mm. um, and Denmark in particular. So um, yeah, that's all I'd say on that one, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and you said you've just done a master's. Have you finished it now? Is it in law? Yes, it was in law. Finished that during the lockdown. So wow. <laughs> in well, was it lockdown? I'm not sure. During the pandemic, <laughs> July. So yeah. <laughs> and um, what advice would you give um, to someone maybe interested in pursuing a career in law, but maybe worried that their disability might hold them back? Um. I think my number one piece of advice, and this will not suit everybody, completely understand this will not suit everyone, but I think it would be to try and be confident in yourself because the legal profession is quite uh, old-fashioned. So people in the legal profession, you know, generally are making big sweeping statements here, but... um. They do have expectations of like what their trainees will look like or where they'll be from or where they'll have studies, etc. So when I roll in uh, in my wheelchair and with the trackie and my carers in tow and stuff like that, I think they're just quite off-putting, to be frank, for people in the legal profession. I think they're quite reserved and... You know, especially, you know, for example, if we're going to networking events, I'm not sure I'd be their first choice of candidate to talk to, just by the way I look, um, and things like that, and what they expect of me, like I said earlier, assumptions. So I think I have learned to be confident and vocal. So at networking sessions on my wheelchair, I have like a rise up thing. So I can rise up to people's head height and I can walk straight up to them and say hello. And I just, uh, I sort of just butt into conversations, which sounds weird, but uh, that's my fantastic <laughs> tactic. <laughs> um, so I think sort of, yeah, being confident in yourself would be my number one top tip because... If you have a phys- sorry, if you have a visible disability, they're all gonna make assumptions about you and they're all gonna be a bit scared of you and they're all gonna think, Oh, don't mm. know if we should hire that person. She probably comes with some baggage. <laughs> um, so yeah, being confident is um and just being vocal, speaking up for yourself. Definitely my top tip. So what inspired you to be become involved in law and um, how accessible have you found the various progression routes you've taken? Okay, so what inspired me is quite a funny question because 
my brain fighting nothing inspired me. I kind of just fell into it. So I was gonna study something else, and uh, at the last minute, I changed my mind. And someone said, "Oh, why don't you do law?" And I thought, "Hmm, okay." So I do it. And it turned out that I was quite good at it, and I quite liked it. And so I carried on doing it, and I did the masters, and now look, I am here. So um, I nothing inspired me. I didn't have an epiphany. I just um fell into it, and it turned out that it suited me nicely because um, it turns out I'm quite academic, you know, like in the writing and reading type of thing. So that's great for law, because you need to do a lot of reading and a lot of writing. So I was like, bish, bash, bosh. <laughs> and uh, it turns out that I quite like public speaking, and that's good for law, because you need to do that a lot in front of barristers and judges and other Eastern colleagues. So, yeah, fell into it, and it worked out. Well, and how accessible has it been? <clears throat> Good question. Well, as I mentioned just now, the legal profession is not known for being diverse or inclusive or liberal. So the actual legal profession, I wouldn't say it's like accessible. It's going better, and a lot of firms are trying really hard to improve things in that sense of like... Um, diversity and inclusion and accessibility, things like that, but it's a tricky one to navigate. So you come up against a lot of challenges in terms of like applications, um, how many spoons they might take up, filling out applications and going to um, assessment centres and, you know, days of applications and interviews. So, yeah, if you're low on spoons, that's going to be tricky. And then networking such a big thing in the sector and especially when you're going through university going through masters all people talk about is networking you have to go to society events careers events firm-based events events in different cities and fairs so access issues become a problem and traveling to me since become a problem so those have been some some of my big challenges but I'm lucky to say that my universities were pretty good um, in terms of accessibility and coping with my needs, or rather helping me manage my needs. Um, but I did write an article on this, so check out my website and you'll see my article about how accessible my undergraduate university degree was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, fab, I'll check that out. <laughs> <laughs> We've sort of brushed upon this in uh, previous questions but you know we still live in a world that likes to put people in boxes and as you said yourself you constantly have people making assumptions about you you know and the focus why I don't know but the focus is on what people can't do rather than what they can do I'm constantly being you know just surprised every day with uh, the variety of people I work with, I obviously I'm, I'm talking before the pandemic, you know, I would often go in nursing homes and do reminiscence theatre workshops, residents there with, you know, quite advanced dementia. And yet, you know, a piece of music might just be the key to unlocking something. And, you know, and they would contribute 
fantastically to the work that we would be doing and yeah never fail to be impressed by what people can do all the time always assume competency always mm. assume you know like mm. you said you often people make assumptions that maybe you you're non-verbal or, or maybe mm. you have um, a learning difficulty as well and I think that that is the key for, you know especially for my line of work is to assume competency and to assume that you know otherwise yeah I don't know you see so many people in these various settings it almost feels like looking down on someone or even mm. their kindness is so very patronizing you've brushed upon it you know in previous question but why do you think that is why is that just assumption there and why is the focus on the the disability rather than everything else about that that person <laughs> and who they are oh gosh big question but um I think my first answer, again, and I know I've said this already, but I'm going to say it again, would be ignorance. So I don't think the normal, well, normal isn't the right word, I don't think the average non-disabled person on the street has any idea or much idea at all about disability and uh, disabled people. I don't think disability crosses their mind a lot. I don't think it plays a part in that life a lot. So when they come across it, they don't know what to think and make ignorant assumptions. Um, I think that people love a good label. Um, mm. They love to label you based on your abilities. Um, my identity is a disabled is as a disabled person, I want people to see my disability. I want people to recognise it. You know how non-disabled people, they sometimes say, oh, I don't see you as a disabled person. That's not actually a compliment. Mm. You want, you, I want them to see my disability, but um, not focus, as you say, on the things that I find tricky or the barriers that I face or the things that I can't do. And that's that's what, we're highlighting here is that people do focus on these things. Um, I don't know what the answer is. I think another reason that it might happen is because of the capitalist society we live in. Um, if you're not productive, perhaps you're a disabled person that can't work or whatever. If you're not seen as productive, then you're not seen as useful, then you're not seen as good. So... You're seen by all of the things that you cannot do, and one of them just so happens to be and money or pay taxes, etc., mm -hmm. etc. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly society labels you as, uh, you know, an unuseful, unhelpful person that can't do things. So, yeah, definitely the capitalist society we live in plays into it, but I don't have all the answers. I just wish that there was some way to change this perception definitely mm. you you know talking about focusing on what people can do which is yeah like as you said that's the dream isn't it yeah. <laughs> um yeah. you know you are having read your your twitter and your website you're quite the thrill seeker <laughs> but you've done things that i certainly would be <laughs> terrified to try 
<laughs> rock climbing, abseiling. I have actually actually abseiled once and it oh. took me a very long time to sort of take the step, <laughs> take the step back. Um, mm, you know, what? what's your wish list for new thrills to seek after the uh, pandemic? Oh, gosh. After the pandemic. So I want to travel more. Like I say, I get quite sad that I can't fly on a commercial flight because I can't transfer from my chair to a average plane seat and I can't sit in that average plane seat. So I can't fly. I want to travel more uh, further into Europe, go somewhere like Germany. There's a great company. I don't know if you've heard of them called Coach Built. No. And they make... Fully accessible, I'm talking ceiling hoist, wet rooms, camper vans for people to uh, travel in. Yeah. So um, when I am a big shot lawyer and I have a lot of money, I <laughs> shall uh, rent or buy one of these caravans and shall travel the world. And what's a bigger thing I'd like to do? So like one of my life goals which is a bit of a pipe dream, but you got to have them, is to scuba dive. Yeah. And there's a person in America that I know, I've seen pictures of, but has, um, is only able to move his thumbs and also has a tracheostomy and a ventilator, and he goes scuba diving. So I've not given up hope. Yeah. One day I shall go into the ocean. <laughs> so, yeah. Those are my goals. <laughs> Quite funny, but there you go. <laughs> yeah, there's um, a fantastic organisation called The Wave Project. Oh, I'm mad them. They, uh, I'm pretty sure they're UK-wide. I've done some volunteering with them in South Wales. And it's like a surf school for young people, but part of what they do is accessible surfing. So they've got a, a seated surfboard, which, you know, you ride with, I think there's about, I mean, the, the ocean will be full of lifeguards while this activity is happening. And the actual seated surfboard has, I think, four lifeguards either side supporting the the, oh, wow. you know, the person surfing. And I've done training on it. I haven't actually done it um, with a wheelchair user who's come on to have a go, but we've done the training with other lifeguards. Of course, pandemic hit, so... But hopefully, yeah, that would be... That'd be great to do that again. That's uh, so cool. Mm. I'll have to look that up. I've not heard of the Wave Project. Yeah, cool. pretty sure, yeah. Pretty sure they've got... I think I think they've got a base in... Certainly Cornwall. I'm not sure um, mm. where else in the UK. Wales and Cornwall, definitely. Okay, so... I wonder if we could talk a little bit about charities now and uh, I don't mean to sound negative or disparaging you know I recognize charities do a wonderful job you know fundraising and awareness I've spoken to some disabled people recently that have been quite outspoken about you know the negative aspects particularly exploitative nature when it comes to children with disabilities in particular plays into the charity model i mean obviously they're charities um but you know the idea to get in the the public to put their hand in their pocket because they, they pity this poor poor disabled mm. child mm -hmm. and yes i can i can totally see that on the other hand though 
I work with some families with nothing and they've got, you know, I think one family in particular that have got two children with complex uh, physical and cognitive disabilities. Without charitable giving, they wouldn't have been able to buy certain equipment. They wouldn't have been able to buy a communication aid. Mm. So, yeah, necessary equipment. What are your views? Again, it's a big question, but what are your views on charitable giving? Hmm, yes. So the notion of pity is a really negative one. Do not like that notion at all. And I think the pity angle leads again to the public developing ignorance, developing mm-hmm. um, the wrong preconceptions of disabled people, whether it be children or adults. So pity has no space in my thoughts at all, really. And using that um, for charitable gain does not seem a very conducive or clever thing to do, just because I think later down the line it will lead to those things I've said, like ignorance and incorrect notions about disabled people. However, I will say now I'm not against charitable giving, um, I do support a number of charities. I think charity has a role to play in supporting a lot of people. And I myself, when I was a child, got support from charities, whether that be money to buy a manual wheelchair. I think at one point I, I got some support for that and other things. I do think there's a role for, roles for charities to play. With research, um, providing equipment and funding, things like that. So I'm not against charitable giving. I think personally what should be done and what the best thing to do is uh, for disabled people to control the narrative Mm. about themselves. I think that if a charity is run and organised by disabled people, then the marketing materials and the things they put out and the events they hold and the depictions of disabled people that they make public are going to be a lot better and a lot more clever than the organisations not run by disabled people, run by non-disabled people, who are just getting it wrong, I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think if disabled people can control the narrative, decide what is put out there into the media or into the public eye, then I think go for it. I think absolutely go for it. And, you know, <laughs> without sounding bad, I'm not against, you know, consenting disabled adults like myself, you know, slightly playing on it a bit in order to get that funding and things like that we need um, mm. in charitable organisations and to get non-disabled people to support charitable organisations. If that's a narrative that we're using, then, okay, like, let's play on the ignorance of non-disabled people here and get them to donate to charitable organisations that are doing great work and hopefully make some improvements. When you use children to do that, mm. quite more dubious because can they consent to that, knowing what they're doing? Mm. Uh, I'm not sure. But as disabled adults, if we want to start a charity and, you know, 
put out some marketing materials with pictures of ourselves in then okay <laughs> just do it like you know the more the merrier let's get some money rolling in um to help our lives and make it more accessible so yeah i'm not against that at all um i just think no to pity yes to disabled people controlling everything about it Absolutely. yeah definitely I'd like to finish off if if you if you don't mind by talking about a project that I am trying to get up and running at the minute. Mm-hmm. So this is a project called I Matter. I spelled E Y E, so I as in I, okay. and it was funded by the Heritage Lottery Fund Wales. Mm-hmm. And so my organisation, Forget Me Not Productions, which is an inclusive arts organisation has developed a framework called Music Can, which is looking at ways that music and the arts can, I guess, unlock some potential. So focusing mainly on um, individuals with complex disabilities that maybe rely on assistive technology, such as, um, you know, technology, communication aids to communicate, for instance. And we're looking at how the arts can be a motivator to use that technology, particularly when you are introducing it. So it's been done in partnership with a um, special school in Cardiff called Ascol T. Gwyn. And I guess it's kind of the the idea behind it was, you know, we want to celebrate again uh, achievement and successes and sort of the positives. And we were looking at assistive technology over the, I guess, history, mainly focusing on things like eye gaze and various other communications um, using switch switches, for example, to control a computer. Um, but looking at how it maybe had developed over the last sort of 20, maybe even 30 years, so at a time where assistive technology wasn't readily available, where tube feeding wasn't a thing sort of 25 years ago. So maybe um, life expectancy would have been much much less for someone with a complex disability i guess the idea was there isn't a mass i mean while there is a heritage and history there and of course everybody has a, their own unique heritage and history there wasn't maybe such a such a, an effective way of celebrating and communicating that heritage and history before various assistive technologies became available So that formed the basis of this project. We wanted to motivate people to tell stories, you know, and enable their own history to unfold. So I guess it's kind of intrinsically linked to the technology that has helped them tell their own individual and unique stories. Um, So it's been put on hold for a little bit um, as it's mainly based at a school and schools in Wales are closed Certainly, I'm not sure when outreach sessions will be up and running again. I'm I'm being hopeful that it'll be from September. But yeah, I guess, I mean, you know, you probably don't use the same kind of assistive technology that we've been focusing on within this project. But how, if at all, has technology helped you personally and through your studies and... How does that technology compare now to what you had growing up? Mm. Yeah, I mean, great question and great project by the sound. But um, 
I think, yeah, like you say, I don't use speech and voice-based technology, but, you know, my life literally depends on technology. So uh, I rely on my ventilator to live, and uh, I rely on my wheelchair to, well, live as well, to be able to get out of bed, move around, do whatever I want to do. I think that those things, you know, without them, without my ventilator, I'd be dead. Without my wheelchair, I'd be lying in bed. And so those things, they are huge parts of my life. And I rely on them 100%. When they break, I'm absolutely screwed. And so, yeah, um, they're an intrinsic part of my identity. And I've written an article before about how my wheelchair is part of my body. And it's not just a mobility aid. It is a mobility aid, sure. You put it in that category. But it's more than that. It's literally a part of me. Mm. So I think that's so important to understand. And how... Has the technology sort of changed from what it is now to what it was when I was younger? Well, I think for me, it would be my breathing technology that I would focus on there. So my ventilators now, they're incredibly portable. I can put my ventilator on the back of my chair. The battery will last 12 hours, 13 hours. And I can do what I want and not have to think about it. And it's small. I mean, if you had seen the ventilators that I used to have when I was younger, and that's only when I was younger, so what, 10, 15 years ago? They're big ventilators mm. that you'd have to carry on your shoulder, something like that. And then, for example, my cough assist machine. It's just a machine that helps me cough, literally. So if I get blocked up, I can use it. And suddenly I can breathe again. So it's... um. It's pretty fantastic, and I only got it a few years ago. And before that, when I was going to hospital when I was younger, the coffices would literally look like the size of a dishwasher. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It'd be yeah. massive. It'd be like this thing that stood by the bed, and people would have to like turn the dials and <laughs> blah, 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 blah. And now I've got a blooming Philips coffices, you know, like a computer. At home, I can just put in a bag and take it with me wherever I go. It's fantastic. So these things have just made my life, you know, exponentially easier, exponentially mm. more accessible. There's that word again, because I can travel with them, I can move around with them, I can live freely with them. So, and that's all facilitated once again with circle back to my wheelchair. Mm. So there we go. So, I mean, you've already sort of answered it, but what level is your, I guess, your own personal journey, um, you know, your heritage, your history, you as a person, um, to what level is that intertwined with the use of technology, the technology that you've just mentioned? Well, it's intrinsically intertwined, I think. Um, like I say, my ventilator... Without it, I wouldn't be here. I got that. I got the tracheostomy specifically with the 24-7 ventilation when I was 11. And my life changed. Mm -hmm. I became 
a person that's attached to a machine, and that is bananas, really. That's just to be attached to a machine at all times. Your life is intrinsically linked to it, mm. um, and that's it. Full stop. No change in that from now until the end of my life. So there's that, and there's my wheelchair. Independence. It's part of my body. It's what would I do without it? Where would I be without it? I'd be in bed. I'd be not living an active life. Um, not going out and about. Not seeing. Well, not being able to leave the house effectively. Um, probably wouldn't be able to have a law career from my bed. Um, things like that. So, yeah, my life, my lifestyle and my independence is all linked to my technology. Definitely. <laughs> what is the one, I guess, um, daily routine or weekly routine that you just maybe took for granted before you know before this happened in march before the pandemic what is the one sort of simple pleasure in life that you are most looking forward to resuming when life starts looking a bit more normal uh, if we're talking about simple pleasures, probably just going to the bar with my friends mm. for some two for one cocktails. <laughs> and the fact that we can't do that now, oh dear, dear, dear. Mm. <laughs> it's upsetting, isn't it? Mm. So, uh, yeah, definitely seeing my friends in town and going out for some cocktails in the evening. Mm. I know it's only a uh, simple pleasure, but definitely missed that <laughs> mm, but i have read that you've been um sort of making use of the i guess online um socials and quizzes and um mm -hmm. you know uh, do you want to say a little bit about that yeah yeah absolutely so um another person on twitter and a uh, great disability activist um and campaigner dr amy kavanagh don't know if you know her on Twitter, um, she started the Staying In, which is an online platform for, well, it's mostly disabled people. You could come if you're non-disabled, but um, it's built for disabled people to come and do whatever on Zoom. So sometimes it's quizzes, sometimes it's lectures or or Q&As with people, or sometimes it's a mindfulness session or an activism session or a story, story book, what they call when you um, choose your story mm -hmm. session. And uh, so, yeah, a range of different things. And loads of people come, and it's fantastic. And uh, she's built, like, a website, and it's very official, and it's great. So... When she started that, Amy started back, um, it was her creation, and I sort of joined in and started to go to events and get to know Amy, and then began to like um, help out and host some events and maybe do a bit of organisation. So yeah, I've got really involved with the staying in. So if anyone wants to come and join us, please do, um, and find us on Twitter and. <laughs> Yeah, it's great fun, and it's great meeting new people, because I don't really... 
like I said, I got involved in the disability community about a year ago, so I haven't really got a lot of um, contacts or friends or know a lot of people in that sphere. So it's a great way to meet new people. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for your time tonight. Thanks for coming on. And is, is there anything you'd like to sort of plug? Any, anything coming up? Gosh, Any articles or interviews? I don't think so. Not the minute. It's just just on Twitter and on um, my website. What's your so Twitter? Um, what's your Twitter at, handle again? Uh, at Jimmy and T. Ah, Jimmy and T. <laughs> yeah, Jimmy and T. Um. So yeah, just come and chat to me and get involved. I suppose. But yeah, it's been great to come on here, so thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks. Thanks very much. Have a great night. Thank you, you too. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Join us next time for a bonus episode where we talk about all things Manic Street Creatures. <laughs>